Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. This is a weekly show in which people who have had a spiritual awakening talk about their experience. My name is Rick Archer, and my guests this episode are Brad and Pam Keen. We all live in Fairfield, Iowa, as do all of the guests I've interviewed so far. Sometimes I have made a brief comment or two at the beginnings of these interviews, and I, there's something I've been kicking around for a few days that I want to talk about for a minute before we get into our interview. In several of the interviews, I've been a little bit self-deprecating about the title of, of this show, Buddha at the Gas Pump. On the one hand, that title is meant to imply that there are ordinary people living ordinary lives who are experiencing enlightenment or higher states of consciousness. On the other hand, I've qualified it a bit by saying, well, maybe my guests aren't experiencing the state of consciousness that Buddha experienced, or you know, great historical figures like him, but they are undergoing stages of awakening, degrees of awakening. I'd like to retract that just a little bit by saying that what the Buddha essentially experienced is the same thing that we all essentially experience. It's just a matter of clarity. He experienced his own essential nature as consciousness, and he described that very beautifully and he surely experienced it with a great, de great degree of clarity, but he had a role, he had a, a mission, a job description. He was a teacher, and he was a good teacher, so he made a big impact in his day, which lasts to this day. Other people throughout history have undoubtedly experienced the very same thing, but it wasn't their role to be a teacher, so we never heard of them. They might have just lived very private, ordinary lives. An example of this that I thought of was that, let's say you're walking down a road, it's maybe a little foggy out or something, and you see a tree. You know it's a tree and not a horse or something, it's a tree, and you notice it and you keep on walking. You don't know what kind of tree it is or anything else, you just see it. Now, a tree scientist, whatever those are called, arbologist or something, might walk down the same road, maybe it's a clear day, he sees the same tree, but he knows a lot about it he can explain it in great detail. He could give a whole course for months on end about the tree, genetics of it and how you grow them and, and fertilizer and all sorts of details about the tree. Both people are having the same experience. Both people could walk up to the tree and bang their head on it and get a goose bump on their, on their head. They're both experiencing the tree, but the scientist knows a lot more about it and can talk about it eloquently and teach others about it and so on. So like that, this state that we call enlightenment or awakening or, or whatever terminology we want to use is universal. People in all cultures have experienced it. Some of them have become famous because they're so adept at articulating it and enabling others to experience it as well. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their experience of it is superior to that of a person who is not a teacher by nature or by calling. So, I think that's the point I wanted to make. I'd like to get started with the interview. Uh, as I mentioned, today's guests are Brad and Pam Keene. They live here in Fairfield. I've seen them around for years. I know Pam sort of because she used to work with my sister in a store here in Fairfield. Uh, my sister, in fact, told me that Pam had had an awakening some couple of years ago she told me that and Pam told me today that her husband Brad also had. Other than that I don't know anything about their experience and uh, we're, we're all going to find out a lot more tonight. How would you like to start? Uh, what do you feel is the most simple and clear way of starting with the kind of the, the gist 
of uh, what you consider significant about your experience, and then we'll kind of elaborate on that as we go along. Uh, I think everybody should lower their expectations. I think that the habit of anticipation that's kind of built into this community in particular, mm -hmm. and I can't speak for others outside of this community, outside of the movement that is predominant in this community, but I know from my own experience, it's very, very simple. It's not complicated. It's not exalted in the way that I think most people conceive of it prior to actually waking up. My ego hasn't changed. My thoughts haven't changed. My feelings haven't changed. I'm still the same ego personality, basically, that I always have been since I was five years old. Mm -hmm. And the content of my mind has changed, but the structure of my mind and the basic mechanism of how I interact with the environment on the level of the ego is basically the same. And I think that what has changed, let's, let's go there for a minute, is my relationship to that experience. Mm -hmm. It's no longer me. What's no longer me? That experience of ego and thought and feeling. In other words, previously, your ego, your thought, your feeling were the, the entirety of what you thought yourself to be. Right. And now right. you see yourself as something more than that. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Um, it's a tricky thing to talk about, though. Very tricky thing for me to talk about. One of the problems that I think I know I had was that my concept of what Maharshi calls witnessing mm -hmm. was that some other ego structure would come in and stand beside uh -huh. the old ego structure and say, okay, you go do what you're going to do. I'm going to be this ego over here. Mm -hmm. and that's not my experience now. I don't think it's anybody. The other, the other, the witness, if you want to call that, is nothing. It's no thing. Would you call it silence? I wouldn't call it anything. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's there by virtue of the fact that all of this is not it. Uh -huh. yeah. Process of elimination. Right. And, and getting back to my original point about lowering expectations, you know, it sounds sort of facetious to say that, and people might think, well, that's not where I want to go with myself or my <laughs> self-concept. I don't want to lower my expectations. But what I mean by that is that it is so much more simple. Than you thought. And so much more natural and intimate than what I was led to believe or what I took upon myself to conceive of. I've had people take that very same concept and just twist it a little bit to rationalize why people who say they are awake probably aren't in the more profound sense that people have been conceiving of it. Yeah. In other words, they say, Fine, you got frustrated that you've been at this for decades, you're apparently not going to get there, so you're just lowering the bar. You just gave up. Yeah. Well, you know, and you just let go. And of course, that's the key. I mean, that was the key for me. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I was a practitioner of transcendental meditation for 25 years. I haven't been for the last 15. Mm -hmm. I finally got to the point where I just kind of said to myself, I get it. I've transcended. I know what transcendental consciousness is. I don't need to go back and do that again and again and again and again. I got it. I'm going to go out and live my life. This was kind of where I was at when I stopped the regular practice, which was about 1995. 
But weren't you living your life even while you were meditating? I mean, because you don't meditate all day. You do it for so many minutes and you live your life. My experience was that I had such deep and absorbing and charming experiences in meditation that I never wanted to come out and live my life. Mm. <laughs> I wanted my fantasy for years, 10, 15 years, this chronic background fantasy that I carried around mm -hmm. with me. Was, I wanted a cave. Mm -hmm. And I had a wife and five kids. My life outside of my meditation practice was very conflicted. I was resentful of all my responsibilities and all of the pressures and expectations that I put on myself and that I felt were being put on me by, by my world. Reminds me of a Stephen Wright joke. He said he broke up with his girlfriend because he wasn't really into meditation and she wasn't really into being alive. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, there's a lot of truth in that. <laughs> so I guess what you're saying is that while you're meditating regularly all that time, you sort of couldn't totally get into this world because you kept a foot back in that one yeah. all the time and we weren't able to just plunge in fully and live life and so when you did plunge in fully by discontinuing the practice of meditation did your experience of consciousness or the self or whatever we want to call it diminish in any way let me kind of put this in a historical context when i stopped meditating i fell off the wagon so to speak in a pretty big way I got involved in alcohol and drugs. Uh -huh. Were you disillusioned at that point? Did you feel like, to hell with it, I'm not getting anywhere with this and I might as well just... I don't know if I ever got that clear on it. Uh -huh. It was just sort of a gut reaction to my adult life to that point, mm -hmm. being frustrating, uh -huh. not very fulfilling. Uh -huh. But as far as your question goes, you know, did I feel like consciousness diminished? I had the opposite experience. When I stopped meditating, mm -hmm. I started to feel more awake. Even in spite of the alcohol and drugs? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So that, that didn't muddle and, it up? And I don't want to make, make it sound like I'm advocating alcohol and drugs because I don't do that now. And I right. have it for several years. Right. And I don't recommend it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a mistake. It was self-destructive. Mm -hmm. It wasn't good. It was bad. Clear on that. <laughs> but just to let you know what I was going through at the time that I stopped the practice of TM. Right. But, you know, after a period of time, I dropped those habits. Right. And I felt as though my program, which had before been sitting with my eyes closed in a warm, dark, quiet place, mm -hmm. suddenly was my life mm -hmm. and my relationship with Pam. It was about this time that Pam came into my life. Mm -hmm. And it was a very natural thing to begin to live my life as my program and, mm -hmm. and to relate to Pam and be in relationship with Pam, my mm -hmm. wife, as my spiritual path. You know, it just came out, it kind of evolved from there. We were talking before the interview how some people seem to have these dramatic spiritual milestones as they go along, you know, that they can even identify, put a date on, look back on a calendar, you know. Mm -hmm. And other people, it just kind of moves along. They're, they know they're progressing, but the, the steps of progress are kind of imperceptible. So, which has it been for you? I'd say a little of both. A little both? Yeah. There's been oh, times of, you know, like quantum leaps. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, always, I'm sure this is a very common experience for anybody who has awakened, and, and that is that the, the first blush of that truth in your life is it's like a honeymoon period. Right. 
It's oh my God. This is it with a capital I. And mm. This is the big it. My experience was that it came and went, it came and went, it came and went. And it's funny though, every time it came, it came back less dramatic but deeper and more real. Mm. It's, I don't know if, if that's an experience that others have had or not, but in my experience, it was always more simple and more natural and more effortless. I guess is the word, mm -hmm. um, but less overwhelming. And then when it went, did it also not go to the same degree? It was sort of... Right. So it's almost right. like you had right. this sine right. wave right. and it kind of leveled off gradually. Right. Yeah. right, right. But it didn't quite level off like this. It seemed as though it got... Right, deeper. Deeper and yeah. deeper. And I, don't huh. I don't know what other people have experienced, but that's kind of how... Uh, it went and how long did that go on? I mean, or maybe it's still going on, but when did it begin to go on where you really noticed, like, this is it with a capital I, honeymoon is here. When did that first start? Well, that honeymoon period was back in 1995. And when you about, stopped meditating. Right. I don't know, maybe a month or two or so. A month or two what? A month, maybe for a month or two. It would I was, stay? It was, I was established right. in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it went away for years. At what point did you do the drinking and drugs? I mean, you, so you were there for a right month. there in that same period of time. Actually, period. during that month or two when you had it, kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't the being didn't care. Mm -hmm. It didn't care. Just let me know if there's any questions I ask which you find uncomfortable, and just tell me I don't want to answer that. But uh, I mean, I did my fair share of drinking and drugs, mainly when I was 17, 18 years right. old. And when I started meditating, the thing I noticed was I felt so darn much better mm -hmm. as a result of meditation and both during and after than drugs or alcohol had been able to make me feel mm -hmm. that I kind of lost the desire for them. Mm -hmm. And once or twice, you know, I drank a couple of beers. I noticed I don't feel as good as I do when I don't do this. And mm -hmm. so I just kind of never thought about it again. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what the motivation would be. And I'm not saying my experience is the universal template, but you know what, what the motivation would be. Did you find that drinking or alcohol or drugs actually enhanced the thing you were already having? And otherwise, why would you do them? It almost wasn't as if they were related in any way at all. And just as a comment on what you said, you found when you were young and you started meditating that you felt better not doing drugs and alcohol. Right. Um, that your life was starting to move in a more positive direction. You know, on, a, on one level that was true of my life too, but on another level, on the level of where I was really living, which is in the level of feeling, it wasn't happening for me at all in that way. I wasn't feeling better. I wasn't more fulfilled. I wasn't happier. I wasn't more productive in my life. I wasn't a better person in that egoistic sense yeah. at all. And I never had that experience, which is one of the reasons why I stopped meditating. You know, I mean, to put it in the most blunt terms, it didn't work for me. Right. Not in that way. Worked but obviously, ways, but there was something going on. Yeah. But it didn't make my life better. And so I bailed. Oh, that's interesting. I don't doubt it, and I've seen many examples of it, but it puzzles me sometimes Marsha used to talk about, he used to use the analogy of you could take any leg of a table and pull it and the whole table would come along. Mm. And by that he meant that, you know, you could refine the physiology or you can use a mental technique which, which is connected, to the mind, mind is connected to the body and that'll bring the body along. And he always talked about how all the facets of life would sort of develop simultaneously. In fact, he, he gave an interpretation of Patanjali's eight limbs of yoga, which are usually thought to progress sequentially. Uh, as one develops, 
And he said, no, really, they all develop simultaneously to the degree that samadhi or pure consciousness develops. And I taught that for years and believed that. But you know, looking back and even at so many examples, I see exactly what you're saying, which is that there isn't as tight a correlation between experience, inner subjective experiences of consciousness, or whatever you want to call them, and development of you know the heart and behavior and <laughs> ethics and all those things, right. as we would like to believe. Right. That was my experience. And it almost suggests that there ought to be and needs to be specific practices to develop each thing if they're not going to develop. I would say that if you're on a spiritual path, you need a guru in your life. A person at a somebody spiritual that you authority. can be with. Mm-hmm. Personally, physically, mm-hmm. on a regular basis, because it's a it's a different thing for everybody. You know? Yeah, everybody's going to be reacting differently, growing differently, mm-hmm. expanding differently. One size does not fit all. Well, most authorities say that you know that you do need a guru. Um, there are rare examples like Ramana Maharshi or Amici who. You know, got enlightened without one. Yeah, but you know, even they would say, I mean, Ramana Maharshi said, the mountain is my guru, you know, Arunachala. And mm-hmm. Amo was sort of seeing every, the whole world as her guru. Everything mm-hmm. was teaching her. And, uh, have you had a specific guru in your life? Or are you speaking kind of wistfully that you would <laughs> wish to? Or is Pam your guru? Pam is my guru. Ah, nah, I can buy that. <laughs> and she should speak. Well, we'll get to Pam. <laughs> in fact, you can pipe in any time. We're just kind of carrying on here. I am different from you, but Mm -hmm. in that I didn't grow up with uh, the TN jargon Mm -hmm. and any of the concepts. I remember when I was explaining to my mother that I had awakened, Mm -hmm. I just said very simply that enlightenment is when your center shifts from the mind and emotions to yourself. Beautiful. She got it. Just Mm. like that. How old were you then? I was... Fifty-four. Oh, so not yeah, not that long ago. <laughs> Maybe just last year. <laughs> Two or three years from now. <laughs> and probably your mom was a, must be a fairly spiritual, aware person to have gotten it just like that. She did. I could tell that she was moving with every word. Yeah. And then at the end, she said, "Peace." Nice. Did she live here in Fairfield? Then? Oh, she's passed on. Mm-hmm. Did she, or she's on the West Coast? Um, she was on the West Coast. Mm. So, you say TM was not your path, but I've seen you around for years, I and mean, you've been in Fairfield for ages, mm-hmm. but you haven't been doing TM or never did it? And, and not seriously. Okay. So what was your main engine, would you say, on, on your spiritual train? I basically did it in my own. And I've, you know, I've had, you know, various teachers, mm-hmm. you know, in my adult life. And I've been a seeker since, oh, I guess, 19. So you've been a seeker. Now, did that primarily um, translate into reading a lot of books, or did you do certain practices, or you know what? What do you? What what accounts for the spiritual progress you've made? Do you feel? Um, I was in different movements. Mm-hmm. I left them when I came here. I oh, I thought it would only be fair that I should try TM, but I didn't necessarily like it that much. Mm-hmm. It never stuck. Right. It never stuck at all. And I don't meditate now. Mm-hmm. And you, would it be relevant uh, to say what different movements you've gone through and what you got out of each one? Or if you feel like it wouldn't be, then we don't have to go into that. Uh, not necessary. Not so relevant? 
Not really. Okay. Because it, I didn't really feel that the what I did necessarily was that important. I've seen examples where teachers say that you know maybe and teachers who have been actually you know doing spiritual practices themselves for many years they end up getting awakened and then they say to their followers that they begin to accumulate you don't really need to do spiritual practices awakening is spontaneous it just happens just be you know just wake up you know just snap out of it whatever and to me that always seems a little disingenuous or something because you know it seems to me that it may be unlikely that they would have had their awakening had they not been doing different spiritual, whatever they had been doing. It mm-hmm. somehow brought them up to the point where awakening could be spontaneous. I think there's a time and a place for that instruction. I mean, there's a time and a oh, place. Oh, for the, for the instruction of let go. And, yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm-hmm. Stop all this. This yeah. is a waste of time. Yeah. You don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. Shut up and be. Yep. Yeah. And there it is. Yeah, last time I saw Ama, Amachi, you know, the, hugging saint. She gave the analogy of taking a river, taking a boat across a river. And she said, when you get to the other shore, get out of the boat, you know, <laughs> don't hang on to the boat. You know, yeah. that's not the goal. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have another friend uh, who's quite young, 25 or so. And um, he was born to meditating parents and learned to meditate when he was four and did it for quite a few years, I guess. But he said he was never really into it, never really enjoyed it that much. Pretty much doesn't meditate now, but boy, uh, what an art, what a clear, articulate fellow! And, and you know, his, he's obviously speaking from his experience—very deep, profound experience of you know of the self or pure awareness or whatever you want to call it. Not only that, but you know, clear experience of the whole subtle structure of relative creation in terms of angels and impulses of intelligence and gods and all this stuff. It's part and parcel of his daily experience. It almost seems like he's got this kind of spontaneous momentum where he doesn't really have to practice anything just mm-hmm. to his as you were saying the process of living his life is a spiritual a very powerful spiritual practice for him and intention. every single thing works stuff out yeah intention i think is in most of the formula you know, if you have a desire for god and it's a sincere desire in the i abide you know i'm sorry the last phrase you said in the i abide in the i abide yeah Techniques and instruction, understandings, all of that, I'm sure, helps. But I mm-hmm. think the most important thing is just um, is to is to uh, be in that desire. It's said that uh, when people used to come to Ramana Maharshi for instruction, the first thing he would say to them is, you know, just a Mahavakya, like you know, that thou art, or, you know, or they have these Vedic expressions that are if you're ripe are meant to just sort of be the final trigger to wake you up. And if that didn't work, then you say, okay, well, practice self-inquiry. You know, look into who you are and make that a regular practice. And if that didn't work for the person, he would say, all right, meditate. You know, practice meditation regularly. And if they really couldn't get into that, then you say, do good works. Engage in, in humanitarian activities or something. And, uh, you it's know. It's right out of the Gita. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what Krishna told Arjuna. Mm. But the ultimate is just to let go. But do you feel that that instruction is relevant to everybody, or do you really have to sort of go through some development before it can become... You can't walk up to the average guy in the street and say, hey, let go, and expect anything to happen, or can you? Yeah, I think it's very individual. Yeah. Hmm. I think it's the ultimate. You know, people have to be ready for it. Yeah. I think that's a good point. You know, there's one of Marshy's favorite phrases was, 
knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. And I think that's, that's kind of useful. It's, or the way Sly and the Family Stone put it was different strokes for different folks. <laughs> it's like you, you can't, um, and you were saying just a few minutes ago, you know, one size does not fit all. You can't apply the same teaching universally necessarily because people are not all at the same stage of development and, and people have to kind of find what works for them. And, you know, some people have this sort of dogged determination to stick with the same thing till death do they part. And others have gotten to a certain point where they feel like, well, I think I'm at the end of this, now what? You know, and they move on to a different thing. And, I, you know, it's not really for, for me to say which approach is best, but I think it, it, it can definitely work both ways, you know. And more often than not, you find that people who are expressing, you know, kind of really clear levels of awakening are very open-minded about what got them there and, and what might get others there. At any point in this conversation, if you feel like there's kind of something you'd like to add or something I'm not thinking of that you think is relevant, just bring it out <laughs> and help you quiet. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Brad. At the end, you, you said you had this awakening, and for a number of years you, you sort of were kind of still taking some drugs and, and stuff like that, and then that, kind of, that phase ended. Was it Pam's influence that caused that to end, or was it something else with, just within yourself that you thought, well, this is over now? No, it was Pam, definitely. Uh -huh. Yeah. And you also said that you, know, you consider Pam to be your guru. Can you elaborate on that? Would you mind? In the most literal sense, in the sense that's right on the surface. Mm -hmm. She's my teacher. And I would say that the main lesson that she's trying to teach me mm -hmm. at this time is that of embracing a personal God as opposed to an impersonal hmm. state of awakening. And how are you trying to teach him that, Pam? <laughs> and why is that important? Well, it kind of goes with surrender mm -hmm. and humility and devotion and all of that mm -hmm. kind of goes together. And what do you mean by a personal God? What do I mean? Well, I mean, he's saying you're trying to teach him that, so you must have a, <laughs> a way of explaining what that means. Well, a personal God is includes the impersonality. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's beyond the impersonality. I feel that an impersonal God, realization of impersonal God is subordinate to realization of personal God. Is it preliminary? And you first one, then the yeah, other? I think so. Most, for most people? I think so, yeah. And it, was it that way in your life? First realizing the impersonal and then the personal? Mm, it's hard to say. Because I always believed in a personal God, mm -hmm. and I just put that aside when I came here, yeah. and adopted all of the beliefs, you know, of this community, mm -hmm. which I believe is impersonalism. Uh huh. You know, I just put it aside, and then I awakened, and I just had to figure it out. Yeah, when I awakened, I, I think I would say it was impersonal. The awakening. Yes. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to a guy this morning who was talking about how 
awakening can move in stages. and It might start in the mind, but really not touch the heart. So like what you were saying earlier, perhaps, but being awake and yet really not having that have a tremendous impact on your behavior or your ethics or, you know, your feelings or any of those things. And then it, it can, from there, move down to the heart level. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he takes it another step to say it moves to the gut. I don't feel qualified to elaborate on, on those stages in great detail, but it seems that awakening can have this, and often, more often than not, does have this progressive nature yes. like that. Mm-hmm. If that terminology helps at all, do you feel that um, the impersonal awakening is sort of the first stage of it, kind of on the level of the mind or something, and, and that, but it doesn't really involve the heart? And when, or does that mm-hmm. does that terminology not help to elucidate it? It not doesn't really help. help. Okay. It does help to know that um, enlightenment is a relative term. In what respect? It grows. Right, right, right. It changes. Yeah, it's not like you know, it's like it's, a rheostat, yeah. not an on-off switch. Right. 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 And as far as I can tell, from, I may be wrong, but the re- it's the rheostat that has no limit. You can just keep you can just keep mm-hmm. being turned up. Uh, used the word belief a few minutes ago. I mean, I've never placed great stock in believing or not believing anything, although I think for years I was fairly heavily invested in a set of beliefs without really even knowing it. Even then I would have told you that, you know, what's important is experience, what you experience, not what you believe. At the very same time, I was like, I had a whole suitcase full of beliefs that I was carrying <laughs> around with me. You know, if you think of all the arguments that take place over religious issues and so on, all the wars that have been fought, to me it's like people arguing over what they believe is like a couple of people, hungry people sitting in a room arguing over whether the meal in the next room is Indian or Italian or Chinese, you know, rather than just going in there and eating it and experiencing it firsthand. Then, you know, the, the word belief is completely inappropriate once they're in there eating. You used the word belief a few minutes ago. You know, you said you had a certain set of beliefs before you came to Fairfield and then you kind of adopted Fairfield beliefs once you got here and then you had an awakening or you, you woke up and you had to reevaluate everything in terms of what was meaningful to you. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on what your beliefs were before you came and what they are now having gone through those stages? Well, I never really put that much stock in my beliefs. Right. Kind um, of in the same sense that I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just I kind of grew up believing in a certain way. Yeah, things made sense. They yeah. were explained to you, oh, you know, I believe yeah. in this, that, reincarnation or whatever, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's not like beliefs are that important. Right. But uh, when you were a little girl, you loved Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. And I think that's the difference between an impersonalist and somebody who seeks a personal relationship with a personal God. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't love Jesus when I was growing up. I disdain all religion when I was growing up. Mm. What Pam has brought into my life is the other way of looking at God. Mm -hmm. The other meaning personal. Personal relationship with the personal God. Yeah. Is that Jesus? It can be, you know, I don't think it has to. For you? For me, I'm not a born-again Christian. I mean, I mean, I guess that's not really true. (laughs) 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 Because when I said that, it didn't feel good. Uh I, I'm not a religious person. I don't attend a church, and right. I don't subscribe to a particular dogma. So, do you consider yourself a Christian, or is that too confining? I just feel like it's not an appropriate description in this time, in this place, uh-huh. in this age. I hold Jesus in my heart. 
I hold Buddha in my heart. I hold Krishna in my heart. I hold Mohammed in my heart. You know, I hold all those expressions of the divine equally right. in my heart. When you say personal God, to my mind, that implies sort of making a choice. Like there are theoretically a lot of women that we could be married to, you and, I, you and I, and we might have different relationships with each one and we might love each one very much, each in its own way, but we have chosen a particular woman to be married to and, and that's our orientation. Mm. I don't have a clear concept of what a personal God is. It seems to me that if one is going to be devoted to a personal God, that kind of choose one, <laughs> that there's some kind of concrete point of focus. Or maybe you choose many. I'm devoted to this whole crowd of, of great beings or something like that. I'm just trying to clarify what you mean by getting oriented in terms of devotion to a, per, a personal God. It's just a personal other that yeah. is divine. That's what I would call it too. It's just the other. It's, a no, it's the other. It, it's beyond. What's that line from Dylan? Just as great as you are, you're never going to be greater than yourself. That to me is the definition of impersonalism. Aham brahmasmi, I am the totality. You say that to an ignorant man and he thinks, oh God, I'm God. My ego structure is God. Right. I, small I, am the totality. By the same token, when Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, if he was referring to that guy who lived 2,000 years ago walking around the Sea of Galilee, that's a very specific entity in, in, in a point in time and place. Many people interpret that as meaning a much more universal thing that he was referring to. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a very personal thing that he was referring to. He could have meant it literally, and you can take it literally. It can be truth, literally, mm -hmm. if that's how you choose to worship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But the point is, when you ask us, or ask me, or ask Pam, you know, which God do we choose? It's like imposing a relative concept. Yeah, it, it's just a personal other. It's very real. Based mm -hmm. on experience. Yeah. You know, the absolute truth is simultaneously and inconceivably one. Mm -hmm. and, and many. And different. Yeah. No, I totally get that. And I'm not trying to sort of pin you down. I, I'm just trying to understand what you're saying, you know, yeah. and clarify um, it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because many people, if they said worshiping a personal god, they might have something very specific in mind. Yeah, you know? a particular deity. Yeah. I might yeah. worship Krishna or, mm -hmm. you know, or Jesus or, yeah. or whoever. I think I have a better idea of what you're saying. I love the point that you were just bringing out, which is that there's this sort of inherent paradox in the structure of creation, the structure of reality, where something can be entirely unified, and at the same time there can be diversity, and the two don't negate one another. Or like you were saying earlier, there's a level at which there's nothing there, and then there's a level at which, and even the word level is inadequate, but a level at which there's very much something there. You have an ego structure, you have a life, you have a personality. The two of them manage to coexist perfectly, mm -hmm. even though they're totally unlike one another, in incomparable mm -hmm. to one another. Yeah, they're reconciled. The opposites are reconciled Yeah. in the wholeness of self. Exactly. I couldn't put it better. <laughs> it's worth repeating. The opposites are reconciled in the wholeness of self. It's the Pam Sutras. <laughs> <laughs> that was my experience for a few months after I awakened. As I went through what we were just talking about. Anyway, I went through this period that lasted a few months where I felt like Alice in Wonderland. You know, it was like one minute I'm infinite. Mm. 
The next minute, I'm infinitesimal. In one minute, I'm exalted being of light. Mm -hmm. The next minute, I'm pathetic, abused child. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, but all of those things became rec reconciled in me. But I did go through that. You know, something like that was the first, I think, the first spiritual experience I ever had. And it was when I was a kid, and I had a really high fever. I probably had measles or chicken pox or something. We all got those diseases in those days. I can remember now distinctly sitting in bed and having this feeling of infinite hugeness and infinite tininess at the same time, and infinite lightness and infinite heaviness mm -hmm. at the same time. There was like this feeling of massiveness and nothingness. And I just kind of sat there and marveled at it in this delirious, feverish state. <laughs> uh, you know, and it left an impression on me that I never forgot. So I think it might have maybe perhaps being sick like that kind of broke through some little chink in the armor of my perception and gave me a taste of, of something of that nature. You referred a number of times to, well, I awakened and then I had this experience or my beliefs changed or, you know, this happened or that happened. Can we talk a little bit more about your, the actual awakening, because it seems to have been a fairly specific incident or time. Yeah, I think it was. I could pinpoint it to almost the hour. It happened mid-dance. You're dancing? Yes. I was doing sacred dance. It was in December of 2005, and it felt like a simultaneous implosion and explosion in the heart. I just started to weep while I was dancing. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but, you know, the days that followed, you know. Everything was different? Yeah, it confirmed to me that something did change. And it never faded away, as far as you know. Have there been subsequent breakthroughs like that, or was that the big kahuna? And, and that was the big one. Yeah. That was a big one, but I felt it was stabilized when I became Kundalini complete, the lightning flash. Oh boy, that'll give us something more to talk about. <laughs> this is what year? 95, did you say? Or 2005? 2005. You're dancing. Use the terminology again, the, the heart, or did you... Imploded and exploded simultaneously. And can you elaborate on exactly what that means or what that experience was? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know if I can get huh? more into it than that. That's approximate. Okay, good enough. You know, sometimes these statements can be unpacked and sometimes... You know, a, a pithy statement is as good as it's going to get. <laughs> then you went through a procedure of integration, stabilization, mm -hmm. and then you said you became kundalini complete. Mm -hmm. So you can't leave us with that one. That's too much of a teaser. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you mean by kundalini complete? Well, that's just when the, the kundalini energy reaches the crown chakra. And it reached it yeah. and stayed there? Well, or, you, or does it go up and down? And, where does it go after it goes up? I don't know. Maybe it keeps going up. What it, what it felt like is that my material existence was then completely uprooted. I actually saw in my mind's eye roots of a tree, mm -hmm. and I heard the sound. Sound of what? The roots. Oh, being torn out? Yeah, huh. and it was all in here. In the Bhagavad Gita, it refers to that tree, the imperishable banyan that has its roots upward and its branches down. Ah. And the goal of life is to uproot that tree. It actually says that in the game? Yes. Goal of life is to uproot that tree? Mm -hmm. Interesting. You I never literally, understood it. I yeah, you literally had it. that experience. Yeah, I literally did. And then from that day on, then whatever happened during my dance mm -hmm. became stable. What caused your kundalini to do that? Well, it happened during intercourse. Mm -hmm. And I've only read that... 
the you know the basis of the kundalini going up the shishuna mm -hmm. is when the male and female parts are uh, the ida and the pingala are in equal proportion mm -hmm. and are moving simultaneously and that, that's like the precursor for the, the real shakti to move and uh it just took three seconds and it happened um i was on the brink of an orgasm mm -hmm. and i noticed that the muscles of the the muscles in the high vagina mm -hmm. contracted and it sent this coherent beam of light up the spine to the crown chakra ignited it just like the pictures in the books interesting thousand yeah. and i was able to see milky way and galaxies you know, and things yeah. like that mm -hmm. just as in that moment or do you, do you still have visions of that nature sometimes i do sometimes i do did you realize that was going on at the time <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think I was yeah. aware of your of that experience you were having. It was a powerful experience. Right. Uh, I was there, right. if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, not specifically. Mm -hmm. Didn't know. If you don't mind my asking, so did did you guys like study tantra or anything like that and make um, sexual activity uh, an intentional spiritual practice? Or was this just kind of a spontaneous thing that happened? We never read any books. Mm -hmm. We were not that, that kind of... I, you know, I've never read books for anything. Just kind of explore on your own? I think it's just kind of innate inside of me. Right. You know, it's just innate path. But yeah, we, we definitely consider our, our relationship, our sexual relationship, our spiritual path. Right. Or a large component Part of our yeah. spiritual mm -hmm. path. Mm -hmm. In fact, we refer to it as program. That's interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like our it's our sadhana, our uh -huh. spiritual sadhana, daily practice. You know, there's this whole fuss about celibacy, and the whole spiritual literature and mm -hmm. tradition and everything. Some people say that you know, sex is draining and it dissipates energy that would otherwise be converted into higher consciousness or higher evolution. And obviously, your experience belies that. There's another um, fellow that I met here in town. He came, we have this Wednesday night satsang every week where we discuss spiritual experiences, and he's come a couple of times. He described something similar to what you're saying. In fact, he said that... I can't remember all the details of what he said, but he, he said that he actually... Um, we know who you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> well, it's a small town. Yeah, I probably won't uh, say his name because yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But he said that you know he actually doesn't... Uh, ejaculate when he has sex, mm -hmm. even though he has an orgasm, but somehow everything is just subsumed. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know if you know much about it, but um, it's interesting to explore the different varieties of what constitutes spiritual practice, you know, either in a clearly defined institutionalized way or what people just discover spontaneously as, as you seem to mm -hmm. indicate is your is your experience yeah it's just a kind of an outgrowth of my healing are you a healer of sorts i suppose but i mean of, so, my own of personal your own personal healing, healing yeah I see. it kind of grew out of my my own sexual healing mm -hmm. just um, awakened what do you mean do you mean what do you mean by sexual healing well, there was I was, a song I was that. abused. Oh, okay. You know, I have a pretty fair... Traumatic. Yeah, yeah. pretty fair uh, history uh -huh. in sexual abuse. Right. And as I began to heal those issues, mm -hmm. it was almost spontaneous when I did heal the issues. Um, 
just all of these different ways of evolving just awakened. Let's see now, you, you both said around the same time, 95. No, yours was 95, yours was 2005 in terms of your initial awakening, and then you've each gone in your own, your own way. And, I'm sorry, I had a, a similar awakening. That was back in 1987. I, I would describe it, though, as a unembodied... Uh, Disembodied? Or yeah, it wasn't like... Wasn't an embodied awakening. Like when I was dancing, that was definitely in the body. Mm. But back in 1987, I experienced another kind of awakening. That's very similar to what I think you're talking about. More impersonal? Yeah. 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 And after that, did you feel like sort of detached or this witnessing thing that people describe where there's a sense of uninvolvement or silence no matter mm-hmm. what you're doing in activity mm-hmm. and so on? Mm-hmm. And that went on for ever since 87, more or less? Not ever since. It just kind of went away. Oh, okay. But it was pretty strong there for a while. Couldn't hold on to it. Not holding, oh, holding on to it, meaning yeah. to retain it. Yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a thing similar to what your husband said where... You know, there's a sense of, yeah, fine, I'm a personality, I have an ego, I have, I have emotions and all that, but at the very same time, I'm not those things, I'm something completely other than that. Yeah. Yeah. And did, do you still have that, or did that kind of fade away with the experience? Oh, I still have that. Still have that. It's permanent. Huh. Some people say that they, there's a sort of a predominance of one or the other, like, you know, predominantly I feel like I'm you know, this universal awareness, and secondarily, I'm personal. And, and others say, well, the universal quality is usually kind of in the background, and I can notice it if I, if I check, but it's sort of secondary to my, just my personal experience. And others still seem to say that both things are just part of a larger whole. That, that phrase you used about 10 minutes ago was so beautiful. I you can come up with it again, but the wholeness somehow contains... Yeah, the opposites... Or I can sell the wholeness itself. Is that you? Yeah. Do you feel that anything can perturb that wholeness these days, or is it so, it is so comprehensive? That and I have to say, it's kind of put to the test. When uh, 11 months ago, I had a heart attack. Wow, you don't look like a heart attack type. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it was definitely hereditary. Runs in the family. Runs yeah. in the family, yeah. That's funny, because <laughs> one of my other guests who came in here had a heart attack. Talking about how that put to the test yeah. his, mm-hmm. his experience. So, uh, how was that for you? I'm not afraid. Of dying, you mean? Yeah, I completely trust. I'm not afraid. I don't mm-hmm. have any deep fears. I think, you know, little fears. Yeah. Not little fears, but you know, you deep fear. When you're in the midst of the heart attack, how did you deal with it? How did you, how did you experience it from the perspective of, you know, someone in whom wholeness is predominant and contains and reconciles the, the parts? Or does it like, you forget all that and then, man, I am having a heart attack and I'm in pain and this is scary and, you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty simultaneous. Huh. But the one predominates, <clears throat> though. The knowing. Knowing predominated. So even then the knowing predominated. Yes. It's not like the heart attack got the upper hand. No. It was always there. Never leave me. I don't feel that I've had an, an awakening as clear and as profound as you've had, but I, I sometimes... But there's always this sort of unperturbable thing. You know, I can be exhausted having not slept and running through an airport trying to connect, catch a connecting flight and out of breath, lungs burning, but there's this sort of silence that's almost loud. It's so, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but I sometimes wonder, geez, you know, what if I really put to the test, you know, I, you know some severe physical pain or yeah. torture or something like that? I don't know. 
You'll find out. Yeah, yeah hopefully not. <laughs> Don't want to find yeah. out. So I'm just not afraid of anything yeah. now. I mean, that was quite severe. I mean, the thing was, we were reading scripture at the time that this occurred. We were reading Bhagavatam. Mm-hmm. And the verse we were reading was talking about how important it was to have one's awareness on the divine, on God, mm-hmm. at the time of death. And suddenly this stab pain doubles Pam you over. Yeah. It wasn't technically a heart attack, it was an aortic aneurysm, the, a- the aorta. Actually, it dissected. Yes. Yeah. Whoa. That can kill you pretty quick. Yeah. I was very fortunate. Got to the hospital real fast. And- no, we waited for a couple of hours thinking yeah. it was gas. Oh. I couldn't believe it. I mean, <laughs> well, it must have been a small aneurysm. Otherwise, you, you know, you would have bled to death. It was pretty big. Really? I mean, when the surgeon actually went in there, he couldn't believe how much damage was caused. And my, my operation was like twice as long as a normal one. Because of the damage? Because of all the damage. Well, I'm glad you pulled through. <laughs> yeah, but as a result, you know, I'm not afraid of death. You might have been afraid before that. Yes, I had my doubts, Mm. like you. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering, you know, is it just what they talk about in the books? Just because we're awakened, I mean, does that really count for anything when you're dying? I mean, does it really? How how can you know? I don't feel like I'm afraid of death. I I don't particularly relish the process of dying, you know, Mm -hmm. because that might not be a picnic. I mean... Mm As they say, I, I hope I just go quietly in my sleep, not like my grandfather, not like all the people in his car who were screaming in terror. Um, <laughs> I'm not afraid of what may be on the other side, even if there's nothing on the other side, although I'm quite confident there is. But the uh, process of going through that, you know, if it's a difficult one. I heard an interesting uh, story this morning. Uh, I was listening to this fellow, Ajashanti, talk, and he was talking about Zen teacher's teacher. And he was dying of cancer. The person who was attending to him brought it, was bringing him some tea. And as she was getting ready to put the teacup down, he went into this coughing fit, you know, and he was in agony and coughing. And she, she put the teacup tea down very abruptly so that it almost spilled and broke. And he said, be careful of the teapot. And she said, I don't care about the teapot. I want to you know, take care of you. And, he's, and he said, I am the teapot. <laughs> <laughs> So even in the midst of severe illness and and pain and discomfort, you know, that knowing that he is everything, everything is contained within him, wasn't shaken. Yeah. Do either of you have a sense of mission? Uh, Some people I talk to have this sense that my life has taken on a new purpose now. It's it's something I'm meant to do, something I'm meant to fulfill or achieve or convey to the world or, (laughs) you know, some such thing. Do you have anything like that or is it more like just, we're just living our lives, nothing major going on? (laughs) Am I I getting at something here? We do have a mission. Can can we talk about it? (laughs) It's not a mission unless you talk about it. I didn't want to. We want to make this as entertaining as possible. <laughs> it would require probably another sitting. Well, we could do another sitting, you know. Oh, no. No, I mean, if you want to wrap it up, we can We can have a whole other session. Pam and Brad's mission. <laughs> or we can go on now. We've got time. It's a two-hour disc. Let me just give them a few. Yeah, give me the main. Give me some teasers, and a then and then we'll like we'll have people like enticed for the next session. Maybe I'll start, and then you can. Pam's story: she was phobic of dance her entire life. Major phobia. Couldn't go to wedding receptions and things like that. Couldn't go to the school dances. Didn't even like listening to music because of the possibility that you know there would be some dance inspired in the atmosphere or in the environment or something. 
about six, eight years ago now? How long ago? Eight years ago. Eight years ago, she began to work with a healer here in town to address the phobia. And over the course of time, I don't know, a year or two, how long was it? About a year. She actually worked through this phobia into a form of sacred dance that comes through her. There's no teacher that she has. There's no tradition that she's, you know, in lineage of. It's just something that just comes through her, and you can jump in any time. <laughs> it's a long story. But the healing power of this dance is phenomenal, mm -hmm. because what comes through her is total and complete surrender to the will of God, mm -hmm. right? And that's what... Pull out all the stops. Yeah, it's very out of the box in the sense that it's not a public performance by any stretch. You just do it in your living room or something like that. Well, we actually have been working with people. Mm -hmm. We have a, a group of people, a couple of groups of people that we've been working with over the last three or four years around the power of this dance. Mm -hmm. We've brought people into our homes and we've had them prepare for three or four days to let go. And then we all go to what we call our temple space, and, and Pam does the sacred dance. It, it's my way of sharing pure love, and the effects are quite profound. Many awakenings, many, many awakenings. People to add to my list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll tell you about them. It's very powerful. So it's not like you just dance for them, but you kind of enable them to dance as you do? In, in their own way? Well, I just allow the energy to dance me, and they let go in whatever way and to whatever extent they can, mm -hmm. whatever that means and whatever that looks like. So they may be dancing or they may just be sitting there? Yeah, or it can take any external form. You know, there can even be union between people, mm -hmm. but that's rather rare that people could actually let go that deeply and right. to that degree because most people can't do that. Yeah, in a public gathering. I'm not public, but in a yeah. group of people. That's not really an issue in that sacred space. Hmm. It's just that most people are not able to let go. <clears throat> First, you have to work through the mental issues and all of the emotional issues before the body can start to let go. And hmm. that's kind of happen. I mean, with me it does, because mm -hmm. that's the dance. Yeah. Anyway, it's a profound vehicle for awakening. And so if you see it as a mission, that implies that somehow it will become more widespread. You'll be able to yeah. enable others to, more and more people to do it. Mm -hmm. how, how it's do you, definitely been in just the beginning stages. How do you envision it unfolding? Like the kind of thing where people who are doing it with you would get so adept at it that they in turn would be able to do it with other groups of people and it would just sort of spread in a... Yeah, well right now I'm in the process of guiding a couple of women mm -hmm. to be dancers. I see. But it's taken a long time. My first dance was in, what, 2006? That was one group that, you know, I danced them, you know, every month until they couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> and the group basically disbanded because uh -huh. too many buttons were pushed and that was the end of the first group. Then we got together another group in 2008. That group lasted two months. Then we danced again in 2009 with another group, which consisted of graduates mm -hmm. in the first two groups. Kind of more uh, hand-picked from the first groups. Yeah, and yeah. you know, they're still going, but in the meantime, I am a heart attack, so <laughs> everything's kind of been put on hold. Um, right. But right now, I'm, I'm guiding two ladies mm -hmm. to, do, to be dancers, and what could possibly happen, I could see, is 
they could become adept at dancing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes, you know, it's not like just something that you can just sign up for and become a dancer. Yeah. It's like you have to achieve a certain level of surrender. You have to mm. pass basically initiations that mm. I, you know, it's like so we can determine, you know, if the person is, is uh, So you, you have a way of sort of de- qualifying or determining whether a person has reached a certain stage. Yeah. Is it possible to describe how you can determine that? Or is it kind of more a subjective perceptual thing from within you? Or? The latter. So it's not something you could write the steps down. No, it's not like that. And you know, and I never thought I would be getting to this. Or at least I thought, I never thought it would take this long. I thought it wasn't going to take more than a few months. That's what Marshy said when he started the TM movement. Yeah, three years, I'm going to enlighten the world. (laughs) Anyway, so finally after three years, I finally had two candidates who may or may not be ready. Hmm. But, you know, really. Has my sister ever come to one of those things? She she being a dancer? No, but I love her too. Uh, Does she know about it? Oh, yeah. Uh, It's probably a little... (laughs) I would love for she involved to Couples have to come as couples. Because, you know, we really do support monogamy. Well, that's one of our programs. Right. And then we have some other programs that maybe we're not that uh, prepared to talk about at this time. But um, the mission is to bring more enlightenment to this planet, mm-hmm. create masters, lift the planet. Great. It needs all the help it can get. Yeah, it, because especially the topic of sex, I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much confusion, mm. so much baggage, so much. It's, yeah. a loaded, it's a loaded topic. Fear and greed. You know, people are stuck there is what I'm trying to say. And this dance is great at dismantling Hmm. those blocks. Um, In fact, you know, there's one couple that has been dancing with us since the beginning. They have completely transformed their marriage. The first time they came over to our house, they were fighting. They had issues. And now they've completely transformed their marriage. She has completely overcome all of her sexual abuse issues. She's completely freed in that level, completely freed up. So that's just one of the side effects Mm -hmm. of this work. But the ultimate goal of this work is beyond enlightenment even. And it is? What is it beyond enlightenment? What is that goal that's beyond enlightenment? Or are you you talking about some more global kind of thing? Returning to Divine Mother's world. Returning home. And what is the Divine Mother's world? that we would return to if, if enough people did this. Are you talking about having this world become like Divine Mother's world? Oh, that could happen. Or something, are you referring to something else? There's a spiritual world and then there's this world. Yeah. But it certainly is possible, at least I hope, through this work that, who knows, maybe a loved planet can mm. transform into, you know, join the fleet of spiritual planets. I like that idea. I sort of feel like, you know, we're not really welcome in the club yet because we're such a bunch of (laughs) idiots down here. (laughs) Does this dance thing have a name so we don't have to refer to it as the dance thing? I mean, Yeah, well, we've called it, we call it, we named it after me. Mm -hmm. Pam. (laughs) (laughs) We call it Sharana Lila. Oh, that was your email address, Sharana Lila. Sharana is my name. Mm -hmm. It was revealed to me. Back in the 80s, mm-hmm. and it means surrender. And Lilo, of course, play. means dance. Dance, play. right. Either one of those things. Is that an actual Sanskrit word, Sharana? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Let's call it Sharana Lila. Now, is Sharana Lila something primarily for couples, or could a single person just come to it and participate yes. without a partner? Yes. Okay, so it's not just a partner thing. Right. It is definitely not a partner thing. Uh-huh. But if Although the person we, is married, do you want them to come as a partner? Most definitely. Okay. Most definitely. 
You are announcing this now because this this interview will go on YouTube and people all over the world will watch it. And, you know, it's very likely that someone someplace will say, hey, I want to put together a group and have Pam come out here and, and start teaching us this, you know. Mm-hmm. Is that your intention to sort of move around and meet with different groups of people and you know, find likely, you know, interested candidates and so on? Good. So do you want to actually give out some sort of contact information on, on this show uh, in order to have people like your email address or something? Or would you... My email address always shows up at the end of these, and people can contact me when I can put them in touch with you if you'd rather do it that way. Give them your email address. Okay. <laughs> you can always change it if it gets out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> change yeah, from Hotmail it, to Gmail or something. It's very intimidating. Yeah. Well, you don't have to. You know, it's a, it's a view. I'm sorry. Well, you know, should be. Yeah, you just tell you describe your email address and you know, spell it out. And if people are watching this and they're interested, <laughs> they'll send you an email. <laughs> okay, my email address is Sharanamrita, S H A R A N A M R T A at hotmail.com. Good. And the first time you told me that, I thought it was R I T A, but it's just R T A. R T A. Right. So say it one more time. Sharanamrita. S H A R R A N A M R T A at hotmail.com. That's correct. And your name is Pam Keen. So if someone is interested in finding out more about Sharna Leela, uh, there you have it, her email address, and you can send her an email and she'll tell you more. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't too hard. No, it wasn't too hard. If you do have a sense of mission, like this is something I want to share with a larger circle of people, mm-hmm. then you got to start tooting your horn a little bit. Yeah. That's true. Get it out there. And it sounds like it's the kind of thing that is not, you know, it's not going to be easy to package, like buy your Sharnalila tapes and do it, do it on your own or something. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's going to definitely take a, a rather adept person, such as yourself, to work closely and mm-hmm. intensively with a small group. And, you know, kind of get them to the point where they might in turn work with small groups. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's that some things are like that. I mean, there are some yeah. teachers and teachings who have thousands coming to them and others mm-hmm. prefer to work with a, a handful. And mm-hmm. I think each has its place. Yeah, right now it's all Pam, basically. Mm-hmm. Until she can train others to do what she's doing, it will be her. But it's really very, very special what comes through here. Right. And it's even beyond a training Talk about training others. People tend to think I would, I would think in terms of learning a kind of dance or something, or even right. learning another kind of dance very deeply and very totally and very completely. But this is about total surrender. More like a transmission. Well, yeah, it's like opening yourself up, surrendering yourself, achieving that level of humility and surrender whereby you are you know, just an instrument of the will of God, you know, in a specific in, with a specific intention. And that's what the dance is. Yeah. That's what she does in this dance. It's almost like she has to die every time. I mean, preparation for the dance is like dying, is how Pammy describes wow. it. It has to go that deep. And, um, you know, to train people to do that. I'm going to have to think of something else now because I'm not afraid to die. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know, it's not the first time that we've heard of the concept of sacred dances. I mean, you know, mm. dancing is yeah. in some contexts considered to be a sacred thing and a sacred path. Mm. I mean, the Native Americans mm -hmm. have all kinds of sacred dances mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. whirling dervishes and mm -hmm. Indian, certain forms of Indian dance are, are considered mm -hmm. sacred. So it seems like you've just discovered, you know, your own form of it, you know, your own expression of it, which who knows, might become a, a more widespread tradition over time, or maybe not. Maybe it's just in your circle of, of influence, this is what you have to give. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Do you have music playing while you're doing it, or is it in silence? Um, Brad usually chooses the music. So you play something? Yeah, and, yeah. but it's optional. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't require it. Yeah. Sometimes it helps to move the energy, but sometimes... It's not necessary. Fairfield is an interesting town. There are things going on all over the world, but there's a lot of things ha happening in Fairfield. It's mm -hmm. kind of a concentrated place yeah. where mm -hmm. there's all sorts of little groups doing all kinds of things, and most of the stuff you don't even know about, you know, because mm -hmm. you're living your own life and people are living theirs. But there's, among other things, we have a thousand Vedic pundits here in town chanting the Vedas mm -hmm. all day long. <laughs> It's an interesting place for a little town of 10,000 in the middle of the cornfields. <laughs> I mean, we could probably do a whole other interview at some point if you wanted, when you feel like things have evolved with your mission with Sharnam Leela. Sharnam Leela. Leela. to the point where there's much more to say about it. For now, do you feel like there's anything of significance that I may have missed or that we may not have spoken about? Any kind of concluding thoughts that you'd like to make, either of you? Something you'd like to leave people with? I think what I would like to leave people in this town with, I have friends in this town, many friends in this town. I've lived here for 25 years. Very regular in their practice of TM. They go to the dome every day. Let me just interject. TM is Transcendental Meditation. Transcendental and, and the meditation. dome is some large domes up on the campus of yeah, Marshall University of Yeah, practice yeah, of TM. Where people all meditate together. And I see them, and I see that they're awake. And they don't know it. Mm. I drive by them and I see them or I talk to them and I feel them. I just want to encourage them to be open to that possibility. Mm -hmm. And as I said in the beginning, mm. lower your expectations. There's so much baggage that comes along with the concept of awakening. Yeah. It's important to unload that baggage, get it out of the way. The truth isn't a concept. The truth is not a belief system. The truth is itself. And I think that there is a tendency to hang on to understandings and concepts to the point where they become attachments mm -hmm. that stand between someone and the truth. I mean, there is more than enough consciousness in these people. Transcending twice a day for 10, 20, 30 years, you've got it. That's <laughs> enough. You don't need any more. It's a simple thing. You know it. Well, that was one of the motivations in doing this show was just mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I felt like you know, there's a fairly large segment of the community who, just as you described, has been meditating for decades and they've, they've basically got it, but they're kind of very resistant to the suggestion that anybody actually has gotten it. <laughs> and, you know, it's institutionalized ignorance. Yeah. And you suggest that, you know, well, there are all these enlightened people in town, all these awakened people, and they put an interpretation on that to make it impossible, at least, you know, for, for them to accept. Um, in fact, I've had people insist to me that unless you can levitate, you are not awakened. You know, you are, you know, you're just not there. And talk about lowering the bar. I mean, <laughs> you know, 
Yes. I mean, I've never seen anybody levitate. But I'm sure I've seen plenty of enlightened people. Uh, I've never seen anybody levitate either. I accept that it's possible to levitate, but I can no longer accept based on so many experiences that it's a necessary precondition or, or you know, symptom of, of awakening. And it's like, you know, as I was saying in the very beginning, a whole range of people can be awakened and have that same essential inner experience, but manifest or reflect it very differently according to their makeup, their skills, their dharma, as it's called, their, their job description. Some people may have the ability to levitate, just as some people are great violin players. Not having that ability does not mean that you're not experiencing the essential nature of, of life, of reality. And it's so important to acknowledge that awakening and celebrate, you know, because it becomes the basis of future progress. As a matter of fact, Marshi himself, since we're speaking kind of tangentially of people who are followers of Maharishi, used to say that doubt is the greatest impediment to awakening mm -hmm. or to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And he, he would always encourage people to doubt the doubts. I was in India with him for four months on a course, and every night it was somebody's birthday. And he would always do the birthday celebration by wishing happy birthday to the already enlightened Brad or whoever. He kept saying, already enlightened, already enlightened. And everyone was saying, what does he mean we're already enlightened? We're just a bunch of dunces here, you know, how can he say that? What was he saying? I mean, I personally, I think that on one level, everybody's already enlightened because we're all plugged into the, that same thing, which if we become sufficiently aware of it, we, by definition, are enlightened. But it's a matter of clarity. And as you say, there are so many people listening to this or in this, in this community who have enough clarity, you know. They've been on a spiritual path for decades. Mm -hmm. And you know, is it going to just be one more course, one more technique, one more oil massage? Or is there something in the understanding <clears throat> that could dissipate, the, you know, dispel the doubt and yeah. get it over with? So, we've made a chink in the armor, perhaps, <laughs> in this discussion. And uh, I guess we'll leave it at that. So thanks a lot for coming in. Brad and, and Pam came in on very short notice. I just called them last night uh, because the person that I had scheduled to come in couldn't make it after all. So I really appreciate your, your coming in on short notice. And, You're very welcome. Um, Thank you for having you us. You made a great contribution. As I mentioned earlier, at the end of this show, there will be some titles which will be on the screen long enough, or if you're watching this on the computer, you can pause it so that you'll be able to write things down. But there's a chat group associated with this uh, show where people are discussing these things all day long. There's a YouTube channel where these interviews are being posted and you can watch you know, previous ones and so on. My email address will be there in case you want to get in touch with one of the guests. And you, Pam gave out hers earlier in the interview. I intend to turn this into podcasts. I may have by the time you watch this so that you can listen in your car and so on. So there's all kinds of possibilities. And uh, you'll see that in the titles. And I thank you very much for watching. See you next time. This has been Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. My guests have been Brad and Pam Keen. Thank you. <laughs>